Welcome to Disrupting Japan. Straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening. Now, I'm going to warn you in advance this episode is going to make you hungry. Danny Tang founded Boksu to sell unique Japanese snacks to the world. And we spent a lot of time talking about sweet and savory snacks and all of the unique cakes and the baked goods. So be ready for it. Now, both subscription boxes and e commerce from regional foods are both very hard business models for startups. They're popular, but almost all of them fail and fail fast. Danny explains that when he started, almost everyone was highly skeptical. And, and by the way, that includes your humble narrator as well. I knew Danny when he was just starting. Well, today, Danny explains what he did differently, how he evolved from skirting the law as a snack smuggler to growing a trusted consumer base to receiving $22 million in investment to building a $100 million company. This episode is a masterclass on how you need to change not only your strategy, but also change who you are at every step of your journey. But you know, Danny tells that story a lot better than I can. So let's get right to the interview. So we're sitting here with Danny Tang of Boksu, who's delivering tasty Japanese snacks to the entire world. So thanks for sitting down with us, Danny. Thanks for having me, Jim. It's a pleasure to be here. That was a really simple introduction to Boksu. I'm sure you can explain it much better than I can. So what, what exactly is it that Boksu does? Yeah, so our mission is to kind of bridge cultures through authentic Japanese food and snacks and products. We do this by, as you just mentioned, delivering these delicious Japanese snacks worldwide in our monthly curated snack subscription box. We have a whole lot of product expansion from there, but I'm happy to get into that later. Yeah, and I do want to dive into it. You guys have come a long way and expanded a lot since you started. I mean, you've delivered over a million boxes of snacks, which, which is awesome. So what exactly is the subscription box? Many people already know about subscription boxes out there, but what makes Boxu really special is that we directly partner with these centuries-old family snack maker businesses throughout Japan. Everything from Hokkaido red bean buns to Kyoto matcha cakes and Okinawa chinskos. And these are products that are all Japan-exclusive, and a lot of times they're even region-specific. We source them all there, curate them into monthly themes, and then ship them directly from Japan to about 100 countries around the world to our customers. And what really gets customers excited besides the delicious snacks is the fact that we always include what we call a culture guide magazine that explains that month's cultural background, why these snacks are important, where in Japan they're from, interviews with the makers. There's just like a little discovery travel in the box that people love. This is something I wanted to get in later, but I, I, we might as well <laughs> get into it now. How long did it take you to realize the importance of that storytelling and that, that cultural explanation? So it was always something I actually sought off to do from the beginning. For example, I founded the company in late 2015, and I solo bootstrap launched it in like early 2016. Actually, it was April, so it was our six-year anniversary right now. 
And at that time, it was just me. So there, there wasn't a whole lot of storytelling I could do. And the first culture guide was like a two-sided postcard because I did the copy myself and everything. Um, so there was only so much um, I could really write and fit on there. But like from the beginning, I really wanted to tell their stories because all these snacks in Japan are so special. Right? I lived in Japan for over four years. And every time I would receive one of these omiyagi snacks, like I would hear like, oh, this is like this famous Kagoshima, like 200-year-old family business or something. And I was like, holy God, that we don't have that in America. That's very rare in the West to have something like that. It is. I mean, not both in terms of the, the cuisine and in terms of like a small family that has been making the same type of snacks for four generations. It just doesn't seem to exist in the U.S., yeah. First of all, U.S. is not even that old of a country. Some of our makers are over 300 years old, right? They're like older than America. And secondly, it's just not that same kind of direct lineage that we have in, in America. It's a little bit more, you know, transient in some ways in that and more modern and recent. But a lot of people love that. Right? I love that. You see that even on like Netflix documentary shows, right, about food or people talk about Jiro, right, and his obsession with how long he's been practicing sushi and teaching it. And people get really into that craftsmanship. So from the beginning, that was the goal, but I couldn't actually execute on it until probably like a year or two into the business. You know, the, the, there's almost a cliche that, well, we're not selling X, we're selling the experience. <laughs> I mean, it, it's horribly overused, but I think you guys really nailed that. Thank you. Yeah, we, we pride ourselves quite on that. Like, I, it's actually advice I give other founders quite often when they ask me for help is that you have to sell an experience, a lifestyle, a brand. If you sell commodities, then Amazon will beat you like every time. And so you got to do something different. When, when we're talking about snacks, we're not really talking about snacks. Right. Like it's not just a box of random snacks. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. And, and you guys have worked really hard to kind of maintain all of your marketing, your photography, your, your storytelling. It's all in-house, right? Yeah, correct. Um, actually, the creative team is our largest team inside the company. We have like two full-time photographers. We have graphic designers, art directors, and all of it is copywriting is all done ourselves. And it's very important to us because it's not just, once again, the brand. It's also about the community and the kind of loyal following that our customers have for us. And we don't want to disappoint them. We don't want to like all of a sudden give them something that is subpar and so a great example is I actually still final taste test everything that goes in the box six, six plus years later. <laughs> I think that I'd be looking forward to going to work for that. <laughs> Today is taste test day. <laughs> it is exactly. We have a monthly snack tasting day and we like ship everything over to our New York office. Our Japan team curates the samples. We get about 30 samples and they get shipped over and then we, a whole team gathers and we taste test it and we like curate it down to 16-ish unique products and I kind of still final curate the thing um, to make sure it's like on par with what it should be. Awesome. Well, let's back up a bit because a subscription box model, it's a tough one. You know, most startups don't make it, but you guys did. So let, let's back up and I want to walk through how you got your first hundred customers and then how you move to the first thousand and then to the 10,000. And then we'll talk about where you're going next with, with box market and grocer. Sure. So as I mentioned before, when I kind of bootstrap launched in April, 2016, it was just me and I had no funding or external capital. Really. I put some of my own savings in 
And so I couldn't do paid ads. I worked at Google before in like kind of digital marketing. So I, I knew that like you needed a certain amount of budget in order to make paid ads work. And so I didn't want to like just waste money for no reason. Um, plus I had no brand at that point. So nobody would even trust what I was doing. Uh, so for the first hundred, it was very much like scrappy guerrilla marketing. Well, the first 40 were pretty much all friends and family. <laughs> and then them telling their like kind of loved ones, et cetera. And so, I mean, Word of mouth can get you to 100, but how were you sourcing product? Were you had friends shipping it over from Japan or bringing back suitcases full of, of senbei or what? The early days were scrappy slash um, kind of even maybe legally ambiguous. There was certainly some snack smuggling. Okay. I mean, it, it's just like, you know, it's snacks. So I think it's totally okay where I, I did actually bring back snacks in my suitcase from Japan to America. I, I remember there was this one time I had like three full check-in suitcases just filled with snacks. And then they, of course, routed me to like the, the customs area like, to put the bags through the x-ray because that's a lot of luggage for one person. And I was like, okay, come up with a reason. This is for a wedding. These are like kind of gifts for a wedding. <laughs> Fortunately, it wasn't really a problem because they just saw snacks and they were just like, whatever. And um, but so it went through okay. But, um, but yeah, in the beginning, it was kind of that, trying to really scrappily get these over from Japan to America, especially because I was packing it myself in my living room in New York City. Oh, man. And I, I didn't have the direct relationships yet with the makers. I wanted to, but my order volume was so small and they didn't know who I was, even though we were, I was writing in perfect Japanese to them in emails. Um, and so in the beginning, I used to buy it from the like Takashimai Depachika in Shinjuku um, in the department store, you know, food court area. And that's where like a lot of the premium snacks are. So it was, it was pretty scrappy getting Of course, that's not a scalable method. So to what you said, after that was my having my friends in Japan, like I would buy it online, ship it to their home, and they would like repack it in larger boxes and then like kind of ship it to me via like Japan Post EMS or something. Wow. So if word of mouth and snack smuggling got you to <laughs> your, your first hundred, how'd you take it to a thousand? You, you've got to be doing some kind of advertising. You've, you need a basic supply chain at that point, right? Yeah, so to get from 100 to 1,000, um, I only have so many friends, so for sure that ran out pretty quickly. But still a lot of scrappy kind of low-cost marketing, so things like affiliate marketing where you would be listed on like a subscription box review site, and if their click got you a conversion, you pay them like cost per acquisition. So that is a lot more kind of scalable for a, a young company without a lot of budget because, you know, you, you pay only when you get conversion. From that to like in-kind smaller influencers on like YouTube or Instagram, I would just send them free product and then they would like post about it. And then that, and that was that essentially. And if, sometimes it converted, sometimes it didn't, but at least it only cost me the product as like, not like a sponsorship per se. I can see that unboxing videos on YouTube in general, there's this whole niche fascination with it. So I imagine, you know, you did pretty well on YouTube. Yeah, I mean, early on, it was one of the big ways we got from 100 to 1,000, actually, because it was like, once again, didn't have enough money to do any type of Facebook ads. I kind of wish I did because Facebook ads were much cheaper back then. But like we were targeting smaller YouTubers. So like maybe they would only have thousands of followers or maybe 10,000. Anything more than that, you generally have to pay. And so we kind of get them early where you just they just want like free snacks and they can create content out of it. That worked pretty well for us early on. It's almost like extended word of mouth, right? You're, yeah. you're still only giving them the product. 
For sure, for sure. I mean, some of them was also on like a CPA basis, like they had an affiliate link. But for the most part, it was not like an upfront payment. I didn't start that until years later. How did you scale it then from like direct word of mouth to in-kind YouTubers and Instagrammers? How, how did you scale up from there? We got from zero to 100 in that first half year. Um, so by end of 2016, we surpassed 100. We surpassed 1,000 after 2017. And 2018 was kind of our even bigger inflection point year. And a big part of it was that because we already had grown and I finally had a small team, I had like three or four employees at that point. I had a lot more confidence and like had a designer, had a marketing person to like start trying. And we had enough budget because our revenue was like large. We were already on a track to maybe do 2 million in revenue in 2018. Um, we were like, okay, let's try the Facebook ad thing. Um, and that's when we started launching Facebook and Google ads. And we had a couple of campaigns that did well. Like you would get free Japanese KitKats if you subscribe to the box or something like that. Um, and that allowed us to actually 10x again that year. We got to over almost 10,000 subscribers by the end of uh, 2018. So was it like a conscious change in marketing strategy? Were you just more focused on Facebook and online and less on YouTube, Instagram? Or was it just scaling up across all platforms? It was a, a refocusing. What ended up happening was a lot of the kind of in-kind YouTube stuff, it's hard to scale with a small team because there's a lot of one-to-one -one relationship you have with these influencers or affiliates. Whereas on Facebook, if something's doing well, you can just add more budget to it. I mean, this was the old days. It's hard now. But um, in the old days, if something's doing well, you just keep adding more budget. and well, let... you can still do it. You just need a whole lot more budget than you used to. You just need a whole lot more budget, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so there was this kind of refocusing on a different strategy, seeing what's working, testing different creatives, kind of testing different boxes of, of themes and things like that. And so there was a, just a lot of expansion that year. And I think what also really helped besides that, there were probably two other elements. One really quickly was finally in early 2018, we had fully outsourced the, the packing and fulfillment of the boxes to a partner, a like warehouse partner in Japan. Before that, we were still packing the boxes ourselves. Oh my God. And so that limited how much time we could actually work on. Yeah, packing thousands of boxes a month in your living room is, yeah, that, that doesn't scale. <laughs> no, it really didn't. And it was like terrifying. The more subscribers we get, I was like, oh my God, there's more boxes to pack. <laughs> and, um, but after we got a partner that was able to then take this on full time, it allowed us to free up our time to focus on the important things for a brand, which is, like I said, the marketing, the copy, the creative, the, the curation, et cetera, the product. So then our product just started hitting this product market fit at the same time that um, we started scaling the ads. Like before that, the box wasn't as pretty. The curation wasn't as good. We went from like six unique products in the box um, we still had around like 15 to 20 items. I just put like four of each thing. So now we have 16 unique products in the box. So like one or two of each, which makes the curation look a lot fuller. People get to discover more. And that just adds to the whole fun of the experience. Uh, and so like things like that was only possible as we kept reiterating and getting more teammates that could help with this. For all the work and planning that goes into sending out these boxes, what is what is your lead time? How far in advance do you have to start planning these boxes? Yeah, so that's one of the things that makes boxes, I think, pretty special as well. There are a lot of boxes out there, and a lot of them, I think, do it pretty last minute from what I've heard. It's like a pretty hastily slapped together theme, and they curate it maybe like a month or two in advance. In our case, we actually start planning our boxes about six months in advance. Oh, Wow. Yeah, I mean, just with the fact that volume has grown and, you know, we work directly with these family businesses, they need a lot of lead time. 
because they they need to plan out their lines and their kind of a assembly like manufacturing and such and so yeah we we start doing the curation about six months in advance and then maybe four or five months in advance we'll get the samples to taste and then we place the orders like two to three months in advance and then everything go gets put together like a month before but if, if you're experienced like that rapid growth you've got to be able to uh, be pretty good at forecasting as well because you don't know exactly how many boxes you'll be sending out in six months it's true. So forecasting has become something we've gotten better at. Having said that, forecasting is always hard. It's hard in any any company. Like we still miss sometimes. We either over forecast or under forecast. And in our case, I think it's probably true of a lot of others too. Under forecasting is a much worse situation to be in. And so we actually try to aim for over forecasting because if we have excess, we can we have other ways we can deal with it. Is that why all new customers get the uh, Seasons of Japan box first? Uh, good question. Obviously, I've done a lot of great research for the first um, three, four years. Everybody would get whatever that month's monthly theme was. But then um, I came up with the idea of doing this like, kind of like welcome box, we kind of call it internally, or like your first box for all new customers. And the big reason for that one of the big ones is forecasting because when you do monthly themes, once that month is over, you can't really use that box anymore because that March box is now the, you know off the, the wrong month. But if you have the same first box, even if you over forecast, you can then just under forecast the next month and then it kind of balances out the inventory. But two was that it allows us to really give new customers the best experience possible. And so it's made up of our best hits. And we have taste preference data. We have sales data. We have interviews of customers. We know what they like and don't like. Heck, I have you have like direct tastings where I feed snacks to friends and family and I see how they <laughs> react. And, um, and so that first box is made up of kind of all the, the best hits. And so we know and guarantee that people have a great first experience. What, what, what are the best hits? Do, do people like like the sweeter snacks or the more savory senbei type stuff or the, the baked stuff? What, what are the most popular snacks from Japan? Um, it's actually a very complicated question that you asked. I mean, it sounds like there should be simple answers, but like as if we look at snacks in a silo, most people like the sweet ones more. I, I think that's just natural. People are really into sugar and it tastes good and it has, it has a lot of complexity to its flavor, right? Uh, however, what we have found just from a lot of our, once again, like kind of surveying and just curations and having a whole balance of it in the box is really great as well. By having a mix of sweet and savory, it allows people to not get overwhelmed with one type of flavor. And that's what a lot of, at least our customers are looking for is this kind of well-balanced and curated experience that isn't just one sitting, but over like either a few days or maybe a week or two. And it allows them to explore something different, not just like chocolate every single day or something. But having said that, yeah, a lot of our like sweet, more like premium feeling like cakes or mochis or things like that are generally doing quite well. That's really interesting. I mean, the Japanese palette for snacks is much broader than what we see in the U.S., right? The U.S. leans heavily on Sweet and salty. Yeah. <laughs> the sweet and salty ones definitely do well. <laughs> the, uh, There's nothing yeah. wrong with that. I, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, Japan has plenty of sweet and salty snacks as well. But, I mean, there, there's this whole other savory or spicy or baked goods and, and just different kinds of stuff available that you don't see as much in the U.S. Oh, for sure. And that is what has made it so fun and but also so possible to keep doing new curations every month. And so we, we have like a brand new curation every single month, which I've had investors ask in the past, like, 
wait, won't you run out of snacks eventually? But (laughs) as you and maybe lots of listeners know, (laughs) never. Japan is always going to release new snacks. There's always more makers to find. It's fantastic. And so it actually lends itself very well to a monthly curated snack subscription box. So all these are being shipped out of Japan. How did COVID impact you? Because there was this time where just shipments were not being done. It was a really hard time. Not going to lie. I... Even remember the exact day that it was April 22nd, 2020, COVID had already been raging for about a month, right, or more in the rest of the world. But that was the day Japan Post announced their shipping suspension to 200 countries around the world, including the U.S. And at that time, we shipped 100% of our parcels through Japan Post. I was like, oh, my God, my business is over. Like, I blood, sweat and tears in this company for like um, four or five years. What do I do? And... um If I couldn't solve the shipping issue, I would probably have to close down shop or at least lay off everybody. Um, So what we did was we kept delaying our customers' kind of orders and renewals and kept pushing them out so that it gave me time to find another solution. So for two weeks, um, I was talking to everybody in logistics, shipping, freight forwarders, carriers. I reached out to my whole network. Like nobody could find me the solution I needed because that was a hard time. As you can imagine, there were no planes in the sky, essentially. But fortunately, I found one partner that saved my butt, so to speak. Like they were able to come up with this one really creative alternative solution that was supposed to be a temporary three-month thing until COVID went away. But we ended up using it for several years. Um, But using this new method, it allowed us to keep shipping. And we became one of the only players in the space that would kept offering free shipping to our customers. And so I made sure to keep our customers up to date and all the stuff going on, apologizing for the delays, found this other solution, kept offering free shipping despite the higher shipping costs. And our customers like appreciated it so much, especially because everybody was going through a hard time. And, um, and that like kind of actually skyrocketed us again. And we ended up tripling our growth um, in that one year. Oh, that's fantastic. And, and so let's talk about your expansion from the subscription box model. Uh, so in 2018, you opened up Box Market. What was the motivation for moving in that direction as a regular e-commerce type site? Similar to what I said before about even the, the kind of content and the storytelling piece, I always also knew from the beginning that if I could make the box work, I also wanted to expand to have more of an e-commerce store slash marketplace. And it's because there are all these amazing products in Japan that nobody has a way to access them. I mean, I, I used to work at Rakuten, like Rakuten, right, when I was in Tokyo, and they have like kind of cross-border shipping, but no American can use Rakuten's website. It is a very difficult <laughs> website to it, use. It, it is not, yeah, it, it is. <laughs> yeah. It's not what you would call streamlined. <laughs> right, right. And I mean, there's a lot of great merits of Rakuten, and there's a lot of great products to find, but I wanted to create this more minimal, clean website where people are used to kind of having a more curated type of e-commerce store once again. And so from the beginning, I wanted to do that. Um, We just didn't have the resources. And as we kept growing the box, we would have some excess snacks in the box. And so we would then, instead of wasting them, we we would just sell them individually on this like kind of little store. Um, We didn't even really have a name at that point. Um, just to like, you know, make sure we have zero waste and, you know, be more sustainable that way. So make it much easier to manage the overages, manage your, your supply chain better. Got it. Yeah. Right. We essentially never held inventory, which makes all of that a lot easier, especially once again for a bootstrap company. But then as it grew and then our subscriber base grew, customers kept asking, like, I want to buy more of this. How do I get more of this? Even months later after that box had finished, 
we had no way. So then that like really helped fuel the validation for eventually launching Boxy Market in early 2018, where we first launched with just around 20 SKUs, which were just snacks that were in the box. But then as time has grown, we now have hundreds of SKUs on there. And now there are things on there that don't even go in the box. So premium instant ramens, kitchen, like kind of really nice Japanese knives. And it's all been uh, really great. Like people are really kind of relying on us as this curated place of getting Japan exclusive items. Now, are most of the customers in the market existing box subscribers or are they coming in from different channels? A good amount are existing box subscribers, but I would say... Roughly speaking, like half of the customers in Box and Market are not box subscribers. They are people that found us, that come in and just place one-time orders, and then a few months later place another one. We also have like Xbox U subscribers, the, the ones that subscribe for a bunch of months and then decided they already found some things they liked and they just pretty restock when they need to on the market, etc. Um, so we get, we get all types. So I, I can certainly see how the market was a natural extension of the box business. But last year, 2021... You opened box grocery for Asian groceries in general. You got a, you raised a lot of VC money. And this seems to be like a really new direction, at least to me. Well, I mean, it is certainly a, a new product line because it's like a totally different supply chain fulfillment and even customer base. But having said that, it is still in line with the, the kind of purpose of Boxu and Mission I mentioned earlier, which is to kind of bridge cultures through authentic food. Even early on, when I would talk to a lot of people, they're like, oh, well, since boxes, Japanese snack box is doing so well, maybe you should expand to having like a Korean snack box or like a Chinese snack box or something like that. And I, I'm always, I always had the pushback because I'm like, no, that doesn't work. Like the way that the box of snack box works is we deep dived in Japan. We have an office there. We have a team there. We ha I have direct relationships. I've gone drinking with these makers. We're like friends, some of us. And you know, it's not easy to replicate that type of deep experience, but I still wanted to be able to help kind of introduce Pan-Asian food culture to Americans. And that's where kind of the box of grocery idea came, where we can do it in this way that's more like everyday items, more like affordable products that they might be able to find in their Asian grocery stores, but serving like a much wider audience. So that going after non-coastal people, non at New York SFLA, that their closest Asian grocery store is like two hours away. Um, and there is a rising boom and desire and demand for Asian products all across America and the world. That's interesting. So there are other Asian grocers online. Is your differentiation that you're not targeting the Asian community, you're targeting the, the broader community? Is it, how, how are you differentiating? So there's several ways. That's actually one of them, as you mentioned, our kind of box subscriber base. And we also just did this kind of surveying and analysis of our grocery customer base. They're pretty similar. It's actually over 80% white. And that is very intentional from the beginning where we're, once again, trying to get non-Asians to try these Asian food products. And in my own kind of hidden agenda, so to speak, but not so hidden because I talk about it a lot recently, it's my thesis that if you get people to try different food cultures and like it, they will feel closer to that culture and hopefully be a little bit less you know, prejudiced in some way because then they get interested and they want to learn more and it's not that different or weird. I like that. It, it, yeah, because I mean, groceries are almost by definition, it's a low margin commodity focused business. And you're trying to bring storytelling and this almost novelty seeking experience to it. So yeah, that's that's an interesting approach. 
Yeah, like so there are other, you're right, online Asian grocery deliveries that exist, but a lot of them primarily sell to like their own communities. And that's actually their targeting and strategy, which is really great because that's necessary too. But what we're trying to do is have a kind of comfortable, clean, safe type of online experience where everybody can come. It's kind of the online Asian grocery store for all Americans. And on top of that, the big difference is we don't do fresh. So we don't、um, sell fresh vegetables or fresh fruit. Um, we're doing shelf stable, and what that allows us to do is ship nationwide from the beginning, which is also something a lot of these others don't do. A lot of the others only target cities. Okay. Was it hard raising VC money for an on running grocery startup? I mean, a lot of VCs, they won't invest in anything physical at all, let alone something that has to hold inventory. It really depends on the VCs. It was actually my first time doing an institutional fundraising round last year with the Series A. And I learned very quickly that you can't talk to all the VCs. You're going to waste your time. Like, you got to really pick and choose the ones that are into what you're doing. So, to your point, if, if I was trying to talk to like a Silicon Valley VC that was more focused on software, they would have no interest, even though I had very strong numbers when I went out and pitched last year. Because this is not their bread and butter. They, the numbers aren't what they're used to. But it, as soon as I started talking to more like consumer focused VCs that did invest in、um, physical product companies or even food and beverage, which those VCs also exist, food tech investors, they loved it. They were like, oh my God, this is amazing. The attraction you've gotten by being bootstrapped is unbelievable. They've never seen this in a DTC company. And they can tell that there was such a strong brand, like passion and loyalty amongst customers that they were like, We believe you are the right player to also now take online Asian grocery to the next level. Okay. VCs usually advocate a very aggressive growth strategy. So you've been bootstrapped so far. So, how does the VC money change your, your strategy and your focus moving forward? It changes it in a bunch of ways. So, the biggest reason I fundraised. Was because I needed to de risk the whole thing, right? <laughs> When it was bootstrapped, pretty much all the risk was on me and whatever money I put into the company, but also the growth was linear and organic. I could only hire so many people because we only had so much budget to be able to do so. But raising the money was so that I can front load more people, maybe not work 14 to 16 hours a day every single day of the week,、um, and you know, gain, regain a little mental sanity. But at the same time, it was so that. It allowed us to take chances, to start experimenting, to long term plan, which were things I, it was really difficult for me to do when I was bootstrapped because I could only see like two or three months ahead. There was just like no reason to be able to plan that far.、Um, so that was one of the big reasons I did it. There is a component where a lot of people believe, and it's actually true for most VCs, that as soon as VCs put money in, they're going to want you to hyper grow. They're going to want you to like hit these crazy numbers, burn through all your capital. And then once you hit these milestones, you just go fundraise again, like 18 months from the, the fundraise, which is a pretty typical、um, VC backed startup growth model. Fortunately, in my case, my lead investor, Valor Siren Ventures, they have a very different take on it.、Um, I have nothing but good things to say about working with them. I actually, at first, had, at our first board meeting, to be transparent, even proposed, like, oh, here's how we're going to grow. We're going to do it like this, and we're going to use up this capital. And they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Why are you doing this? We invest in you because you have a strong core unit economics, strong business. Like, would you spend your own money this way? And I was like, probably not. They were like, then don't spend our money this way. Like, get all of your unit economics down, then you pour fuel on the fire. Wow, that's actually refreshing to hear. 
Yeah, so there are investors that can align with what you're looking for. I mean, granted, some startup founders also just want to grow like crazy, right? But for me, I'm actually trying to build like a long-lasting, like 50-plus-year-old brand at least. I'm looking to really make this become a thing people know all over the world. Slow and steady sometimes is better. Like you, if you overextend, there are a lot of chances of things imploding. Well, you know, I think maybe it, it, that's probably the value of having VCs who are experts in the domain. So when you're dealing with software, yeah, nothing keeps you from doubling, tripling every year. But when you're dealing with real customers and food and beverage, I guess the equation is really, really different. Yeah, it's really different for sure. And they understand that given their track record of who they've backed and how they've seen growth and it's a lot healthier to grow when you have like a positive contribution margin, right? For example, like that's kind of just uh, is the way it should be. And that, that's the practice we're trying to follow as well. So five years from now, looking into the future, pulling out our crystal ball, what do you see is, is sort of the revenue split between the subscription boxes and the market and the grocery uh, so currently the subscription box, given that it's our like kind of core product and the one that started first is still the majority of the revenue, but the big plan as we keep scaling market and grocery is to have it be ideally like evenly split amongst the three. It probably will take a while to get there given that grocery is a, a very new product that just launched like late last year, but I strongly believe that there's a lot of potential there. And so this is allowing me to kind of diversify and kind of get many types of customers into our ecosystem to eventually then hopefully cross-sell them on the other stuff as well. But yeah, ideally kind of equal amongst the three. All right. Let's talk a bit about Japan. I love what you guys have done because even, even putting the subscription boxes aside, there have been so many Japanese startups whose business idea has been, let's take this unique product that's built in this area of Japan and sell it to the rest of Japan. Or let's take this unique sake that's, that's made in this prefecture and either sell it to the rest of Japan or sell it internationally. And almost all of them have failed, almost universally. And you guys, you guys didn't. So what's, what did you do differently than all these others? What would you tell them like, hey, before you launch a startup with this thesis, do X? <laughs> I think what really stood us out from kind of a lot of other companies is our emphasis on, and once again, it sounds cheesy, but on the kind of experience, the storytelling and the community. A good example is in 2019, and at that time we were still mostly bootstrapped, I kind of found a really scrappy documentary film crew in America to come out with me to Japan. And we filmed for two weeks, went around visiting five of our snack makers, filming this like snack maker documentary that we called Snack Bites. Yeah, those are awesome. Those are fantastic. Thank you. No, I love those. They're up on the site. We'll put links up on the, the Disrupting Japan page. Those are awesome. I highly recommend them. They're just heartwarming. And like that was kind of a total risk. And that was totally like me doing a long-term play. Like I knew that wasn't going to bring us conversions right away because these were like kind of very premium, like kind of edited, beautiful, like almost Netflix quality food documentary shot things of me interviewing the makers and their stories in Japanese, showing how they make like Anpan and Hokkaido or these other snacks. And, and we, we actually, you know, we tested those ads on Facebook and they didn't convert that well because I think it wasn't the like super like kind of 
frenetic, punchy ads that get people's attention. It's long-form storytelling. It's long-form storytelling. But what it has done for us is, one, it's helped with hiring tremendously. People know we're authentic and legit, both in Japan and America. Two, there's a lot of customer, once again, loyalty because they're like, oh, this company is real. Like Every company can say they're authentic and have direct relationships with whatever. But the fact that they see me with them and they see the faces and the stories and it humanizes them, I truly believe it had a lot of strong like retention effects, but showing that we're we're more we're here to build a brand. We're not just here to immediately have short-term kind of money making, and these are things that I'm passionate about, and I think that comes through for a lot of people. Like I am doing this cuz I I love Japan and I love Japanese food. I'm not looking to get rich quick. If I was, I don't think I would have chose a Japanese snack box. That's my idea, to be perfectly <laughs> <Right>. honest. <laughs> and I think that type of authenticity is what people resonate with. Well, you know, I think another thing, just in just hearing you explain this, I think another big difference is that while most of these startups or idea stage, it is people who are assuming that the product will tell its own story that everyone knows that this famous local delicacy exists. So they'll order it online. And you and the team kind of took the opposite approach of like, no, 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 we are going to tell the story. We are going to create the demand. Yeah, exactly. I think that's the part a lot of Japanese, especially maybe founders don't realize is that you can't take it for granted. Like I have a lot of people that think like, oh, well, of course, this is going to sell well overseas. It sells well in this in Japan or in this prefecture. But you know, things that do well outside of Japan are not exactly the same. A good example is like anything with red bean. They it doesn't. We have tried multiple times. They red bean snacks do not perform. It's an acquired taste. I mean, yeah, yeah. I like it. Like I enjoy it, <laughs> but like it's exactly. But like you know, we it's not. And so you got to find the right things that walk that fine line of being traditional or authentic, but still can appeal to like a modern flavor for a lot of our customers. In fact, that's kind of one of our taglines is like modern snacks, traditionally inspired, where, you know, we're not only selling the really traditional stuff, but we're trying to get people to enjoy all facets of Japanese snacks and food. Um, And we we do it with the kind of content and the videos and the photography and just really elevating all of it to get people to kind of trust in what this is. Awesome. Let me ask you, we, we talked a lot about your journey from the first hundred to tens of thousands of, of customers. So what was the hardest thing, or at least the most important thing that, that you had to learn in, in growing the company from, from bootstrap to scaling? I think there are probably two. One is that hyper growth sounds really great. But if you don't have the right infrastructure in place and the right team and the right support and the right fulfillment center and the operations, everything is going to break. Um, the whole system is going to collapse because you can't just acquire new customers and get in new orders. Um, even if you have enough inventory, if the warehouse doesn't know and they can't pack the boxes fast enough because they don't have enough staff allocated to you or customer service doesn't have enough people. So then you're like, every customer's mad why their boxes are taking so long to ship out. And so anytime you expect to kind of grow or you have a plan to do this campaign, Every kind of stakeholder that's involved needs to be aligned. And so that's very important uh, is what I've learned, like every step of the way. But number two, I think, and this is more of like a broad view of startups in general. A lot of times you have to survive. (laughs) What do you mean? Like growth is important, but sometimes what's more important is surviving long enough to find those inflection points. Like if you're just around long enough, 
opportunities might present themselves to you. But if you, you try and grow too quickly and hit that like break even point and you overextend, your company might collapse or you might like have a bad reputation. You might lay off half your staff before you can reach that point. Um, one example is like in, in our case, yes, like COVID was very hard. But as I mentioned, because I got to solve through it, it actually changed everything for us since we like tripled our customer base and our revenue in just one year. We hit profitability at the beginning of 2021, thanks to kind of this increase in customer demand. Yes, we were already on an upward trajectory, but COVID really helped accelerate it. And so surviving long enough and surviving through that first wave of no planes in the sky is what allowed us to then kind of capitalize on the huge demand when people are stuck at home. That makes sense. Yeah, everyone loves to talk about the big swings and the big bets, but a lot of times it is just survival instinct, making sure you can make payroll next month. Make payroll, like make your customers, keep them happy, like retain them. It's okay if you even need to flatline for a little bit because, you know, like it's not always about growth. You still might present some new opportunity. We're now like we're in talks with some really awesome names in Japan about doing some partnerships. And it's because we kind of survived long enough to get to where we are and grow to where we are. That would not have been possible if we spent all of our capital just trying to reach this unrealistic goal two, three years ago. Everyone always likes to talk about business learnings and business growth, which is was great. But I'm curious, is there anything you had to change about yourself in that bootstrapping to scaling? Something like you had to change about who you are or how you relate to the world? So, you know, from the conclusion, I had to stop being so cheap. <laughs> and so um, kind of what the one thing that had to change was during bootstrap time period, I had to be very capital efficient, so they say. But I, I like to just jokingly say I was really cheap. cheap. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Call it what it is. <laughs> really hard negotiation with my vendors, with my kind of technology partners, especially the like, you know, technology vendors. I'm like, you know, you guys are software companies. You've raised money. Come and help me out here. Like I'm a small business trying to just survive and grow. And so like trying to really do whatever I can to like keep all costs down, I worked all the time. My, my time was not valuable because, you know, I was just trying to make this thing happen. But one of the big shifts I have to do now that we have fundraised is time is incredibly valuable <laughs> with everything going on. Like I can't be working on a lot of the kind of small detail things I used to. Like what can I do to be a lot more effective and impactful in a larger organizational way? How do I train and motivate and systemize a lot of my knowledge so that the new people we hire can ramp up quicker so then we waste less time with inefficiencies. Things like that were things that I never had to think about before because um, I didn't like have this like kind of funding and thinking about the runway as much. And so, so it sounds like a lot of kind of learning to, to kind of let go of things. Yes. <laughs> Not worrying about every penny and, and, and trusting people to like, okay, just don't tell me the details. Just, just get it done. <laughs> Exactly. Because early on, a lot of my early hires were a lot of juniors because that's all I could afford. And so it was a lot of me training them and a lot of me kind of really handholding them. And, and But now it's more about like bringing on people that have experience that can hit the ground running, but then giving them the tools and letting go, kind of letting them do their thing. And that has been a really big shift for me. Just even in the last few months, I'm, I'm doing this more and more to try and like value my time and where I can be most useful as a founder CEO of this company. It's not getting in and like checking on my Shopify orders every day, like which I used to do like, like obsessively back in the day. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and like looking forward for those next next five years, we talked about the business challenges 
what what do you see as like the personal challenges? What are you going to have to to learn or become? That's a great question. Uh, I think one of the biggest ones I'm working on right now that is really challenging but really fun. What I've really enjoyed being a founder CEO about is that every step of the way there's a new challenge. Like in the beginning, it was how do I get these snacks to America in a cost-efficient way and pack and ship them out? Then it was like, how do I find a fulfillment partner? How do I scale? How do I do paid ads? And now it's, how do I run a 50-person organization? Like this time last year, we had like 12 employees. And it was a lot easier to keep everybody aligned when there's only 12 people and I can have one-on-ones of all of them. I definitely cannot have one-on-ones with 50 people. <laughs> um, how do we then set up a structure, reporting, teams, objectives and key results? How do I keep the team motivated, find the right fit, be a good mediator whenever any problems come up? It's been very interesting to learn how to be a better manager, essentially. As a company grows, there's these inflection points. Like you hit one at about six or seven people where suddenly you need to put in some kind of formal processes because you can't rely on everyone's kind of knowing what everyone does. And there's Mm -hmm. another one that hits around 20 or 25 where you need to have kind of clear management layers. And yeah, it's, it's really different at every step. And the ability to adapt and make the best of it or even in advance, see what's coming and then set up your systems to handle that is, I think, what also will allow a startup to thrive. Yeah. If you wait too long to implement the systems you're talking about and you get to like 100 people and you don't have like a knowledge sharing like system either on like, a, you know, some type of database or wiki or something, then you might be screwed. <laughs> um, it's It's really hard at that point. Yeah. Well, I mean, being the CEO of a 30 person startup is a very very different job than being the CEO of a six-person startup. For sure. And, you know, when you scale up to 100 and beyond, it changes again. And let's see if I will continue enjoying that. I think I will, but I've heard founders say they're like, oh, really, into like building the product. And once there's HR, they get less excited. But for me, I see it as like, once again, just even all new learning opportunities. Yeah. Well, just like you were saying, the great thing about running a startup is new challenges every day. There's definitely never a lack of that. (laughs) All right. Hey, Danny, thanks so much for coming on. I'm so glad we finally got a chance to sit down with with the microphone on. Thank you for having me. It's uh, been a pleasure, Tim. And we're back. We talked a lot about storytelling this episode. And as a bit of a storyteller myself... It's clear that each step in Box's development takes them a bit further away from their storytelling roots. The basic box is ideal for storytelling. You don't know what's in it, but it's something fun. So it's easy to say, let me tell you the story behind each of these sweets as you sit and enjoy them. It's, it's like podcasting with candy. When you move to the market, that sense of surprise is largely gone. Pre-sale storytelling is still important, but more and more customers know what they want, and they're there to find it. The move to grocery pushes storytelling even further into the background, and brands and price tend to dominate. So will it work? Sure. I mean, maybe. Danny and the team certainly understand this dynamic, and they're responding accordingly. 
But today I want to end on a very important point that Danny made, and one that that not enough founders really understand. Not all VCs want to push you into hypergrowth. Many actually prefer still fast, but safer growth. The important thing is finding a VC that understands your industry. And yes, those VCs exist in almost every industry. Now, Tanny certainly didn't choose an easy business model. Both subscription boxes and online grocery have reputations as being doomed to failure. But Danny's making them work. And we'll have to get Danny back on the show in a couple of years and see if this trend continues and hear how he's made it work out over the long haul. If you want to talk more about scaling startups or Japanese snacks, and and come on, I, I know you do, Danny and I would love to hear from you. So come by disruptingjapan.com slash show 192 and let's talk about it. If you leave a comment, I guarantee you that Danny or I or maybe both will respond. Oh, and hey, if you get the chance, please follow us on LinkedIn and leave a review on iTunes or your podcast platform of choice. Or, you know, if you like the show, maybe just tell a friend about it. In this age of over-the-top hype and fake-it-till-you-make-it influencers, your honest recommendation means a lot more than you might think. But most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.